Good afternoon. It is 1.07 p.m. and you're tuned into the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. As usual, I'm Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. We'll be talking about things at home and abroad. Firstly, looking at the water crisis in the country. So looking at issues of drought and mismanagement and how all those things come together, together with consumption to create quite a tricky situation for South Africa's sort of water situation. We'll also be looking at what is being called an ecological crisis in Indonesia with the giant forest fires. In addition, we'll be looking at MTN Nigeria being fined $5.2 billion and what on earth is going on there. And we'll also touch on some of the EU migrant issues and what's going on with some of the sort of the continued millions of people moving into the, the into Europe and the European Union and how that's and how that's being handled. I'm joined in studio by my esteemed colleagues, Greg Nicholson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm disappointed to learn that the actual show went on without me when I wasn't here. I thought I thought everything would just stop. I mean, contrary to popular opinion that everything falls apart, we managed to we managed to get on okay. In part, and due to no small part, due to Fatima Mativa's excellent work. Fatima, welcome back again. Hi, King. So I want to actually start with you, Fatima, and you've been digging into the water stuff, you know, quite a bit. So, you know, Fatima, what's going on? I keep hearing water crisis. They say one one place is water restriction, second place there's no. So what? could you just unpack for us what the water crisis actually is? So... um Some of the key issues that are surrounding the water shortages are, um, first is the management of of water. So there's a lot of issues with investment in repairing and Mm. maintenance, Mm. which is causing a lot of leakages in the system, which they call non-revenue water. And then there's the issue of behavioral issues, how people are consuming their water. um, And they've been trying to tackle that with a lot of campaigns. And then the last factor is, of course, the climate. Um, so there's a decrease in rainfall in the country right now. And yeah, those are the three main issues, really. I mean, yeah, I've been hearing a lot about it being sort of one of the driest periods in, in, in South Africa for a while. So we want to talk to somebody who knows more about this than I do. Corbus Olivia, Prediction Research Scientist at South African Weather Service. Corbus, can you hear us? Hi, yes. Fantastic. Thanks for holding on. I know you've been there for a bit. Thanks for holding, Kubus. Okay. Perfect. Now, Kubus, I was talking about the sort of the water crisis in the country, what's being described as the water crisis. And we're being told that one of the contributing factors is, is, the, is the drought and the rainfall aspect. So could you just break that down for us? Uh, what's going on on that front? So most generally for most of the country, we are experiencing dry conditions. Now, it's not uh, – some areas are getting some rain, but overall we are experiencing dry conditions, and this is – uh, exaggerated by the previous season, there was also January dry. So some areas are actually in a drought uh, situation where there was consecutive dry seasons. And we are expecting for most of the summer period that the dry and warm conditions will continue mm. uh, for most of the country, especially mm. for the summer rainfall areas, the northeastern parts, which are currently in their rainfall season. We expect that to have quite a bit of an impact. Okay. I mean, I hear you. I mean, we're hearing it's one of the sort of driest periods in the country's history. Is this, um, have we ever experienced this kind of, this drought before? And how, and how did that play out the last time? So, there's, uh, there's been numerous occasions where we've had dry conditions. Okay. What, I to, what I have to remember is that in our, in South Africa specifically, we, we go through a, a very big uh, variability phases from year to year. Mm. So, it's not uncommon for us to get dry conditions now and again. But in some cases, such as the 82-83 season, mm. we had very dry conditions that impacted uh, a lot of sectors. And it's difficult to say whether the, we would have that kind of extreme impact in a forecasting sense, although we do expect uh, very uh, some areas to uh, get uh, very dry conditions and probably drought conditions to occur. Okay, so I'm just looking at a sense. So when... Um, you know, for me, sort of, sort of regular South African going around day to day sort of business. What, what, what do you think is the, is, how dire is the situation basically? Is the word crisis apt? Is it, is it at that point? It could be. It's difficult from the weather service point of view as those are uh, usually more uh, different sectors. The impact is on different sectors. So the agriculture and the water sources, uh, water affairs would have a more of an indication of how bad situation currently is. So mm-hmm. we only know, you know, what the forecast and what the rainfall situation is. We're not, we're not entirely sure what the current water source and 
yam levels and the agricultural sector is. So we're more apt to talk to them specifically on how dire the situation is. Although, with regards to rainfall specifically, it is quite dry in a lot of areas, and the expectation is uh, for a high likelihood of drier conditions to continue for most of the summer period. Oh, yeah, actually, that's, that's actually my next question. You say it will continue for the, for the rest of the summer period. Do you see it going on beyond that, or how, how long do you think this drought will continue? So we only expect this to affect the current rainfall season that's, uh, that's in, in effect. So the summer rainfall area is so the northeastern part. So mm. um, we expect that to mostly go up to about March, April to have an impact. Not necessarily that it will uh, have an impact on every month. Uh, the way the seasonal forecast, well, even our seasonal um, situations are in South Africa, is we get a uh, distribution of rainfall throughout the season. So we might have said certain months it's very dry, certain months might actually quite, be quite wet. So that's just the reality of our seasonal uh, distribution of rainfall in South Africa. So uh, even though our forecast is for dry conditions throughout the summer, mm. it does not mean that some months might actually be quite a bit wet. Okay. Um, I mean, I love that you mentioned sort of, sort of the national and that this is sort of common to the South Africa. Um, area because I mean a lot of terms are being thrown around. People mentioning global warming, some people saying this is El Nino, and I think there's just a lot of confusion between these kinds of weather patterns. So could you just clarify that for us? What is the impact of global warming on this? How does El Nino play into this, if at all, or is this yeah. just sort of regular South Africa's sort of sort of weather pattern, and this is perfectly normal? Okay, so global warming or climate change affects generally the change of the season as a whole very gradually over decades and decades. Mm-hmm. So you, you won't see the impact of global warming or climate change on one specific season. So as I, as I mentioned, the biggest factor for us is this huge variation from year to year anyway, naturally, from uh, regards to seasonal rainfall. So the biggest factor is what we call climate drivers. And one of those climate drivers is the... Alvinia Southern Oscillation, which is in the Pacific Ocean. And this phenomena goes through different phases. You get an El Nino phase or warming phase or mm. La Nina phase or cooling phase. And those, that impacts weather or seasonal weather across the globe. And for South Africa specifically, when there's an El Nino phase, it usually gives us, it usually contributes negatively to our seasonal rainfall. In, but it, very importantly, only the summer rainfall areas and not mm. really anywhere else. Okay, thank, thanks for clarifying that. And I mean, I just, sure. you know, before we let you go, I'd just like to, to understand, you mentioned before that um, as the weather service, you play a very specific role and the government departments and so on play their own roles. And how do you, how do you use your data and your predictions and your research um, to inform how they make decisions on the water management side? So now as you're doing your forecasting now, how, what, is the, what is the relationship like and practically what does it look like in, in how your number crunching and data yeah. forecasting plays into their sort of implementation? So most of the departments, has a, we do have a relationship with them. So mm. they are, they rely, we produce our forecasts every month. So we provide updates every month. And for some departments, it's maybe a bit passive. For some departments, more active. For instance, for the agricultural sector, we do meet on a quarterly basis okay. where we provide them the forecast and then they uh, produce an advisory every month uh, to, to be more uh, specific to what uh, farmers and uh, agricultural sectors should do given the forecast. Uh, so it's similar to other sectors as well. They would contact us, ask us what's the current information and we would tell them. And they will then take, take that back and try and uh, implement it in their systems. Okay. Now, I'm going to push you here, here a bit. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you think of, of those different departments, especially the Department of Water and Sanitation and Sanitation, sorry, and their ability to act on your forecast? If you're saying you can anticipate this drought going until sort of March, April, what do you think of their ability to sort of handle the situation? Well, it's going to be obviously difficult. If there's no rain, there's no rain. There's not much you can do, I assume. Uh, I guess just uh, try and work around with what resources you have in certain areas. And if you can transfer, transfer. But uh, it's obviously quite difficult. I, I obviously can't speak for them. I don't, you know, uh, I'm not entirely sure exactly how their systems work. So, um, you know, but it's going to be difficult. If there's no rain, it's going to be difficult to manage anything when there's not really much. So... Uh, but again, well, one needs to contact them and find out what the actual situation really is. 
I hear you. Thank you, Kobus. I know I put you on the spot a bit. We'll be speaking yeah, to the department fine. shortly and, and I'll make sure to pass on that question yeah. to them. Kobus Olufia, Prediction Research Scientist at the South African Weather Service. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Perfect. Thank you. I mean, you heard it there, right? It's going to be dry until sort of March, April. And it, it sounds like despite the sort of measured measured answers and sort of measured response, it sounds like it's clear from their side that it's, it's going to be tough if it, you know, if, it, if it doesn't rain until then. Sounds like something I think the public has to really start to consider and factor into in terms of our decision-making and how we use our own water. I mean, yeah, Fatima, we talked about this the other day, about how there's been some attempt to to actually change behavior in terms of in terms of consumption. And your comment was, why is that the case if, 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 if sort of personal and household consumption isn't that big? isn't that big of a percentage of consumption. You were looking at the consumption stats and what, what, what did you see as sort of the big trends in how the country consumes water? Well, essentially most of our water is consumed by agriculture, specifically irrigation. So it's a mixture of um, household irrigation and then irrigation in the agriculture sector. And that's 60% of our available water. So I was thinking, well, if about 10 to 15% is used by households, then what is my shorter shower going to change? I mean, I think it's a tricky bit because on one hand, you know, if you want to drastically reduce <laughs> consumption of water, it makes sense to go to the agricultural sector. But I, I just assume that it's so tricky, especially if they're growing food mm. and then it affects food prices. If they're growing flowers or whatever and they don't have enough water, it affects exports. So I imagine it's it's easier to sort of turn to us and just say, guys, just, you know. Take shorter showers. I imagine that's sort of the way to go. Exactly. You look like you're actually doing something. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit cynical. Greg, I'm curious <laughs> for your point of view. I remember you, you mentioned before that you've been, you've seen an effective sort of water management process before on the consumption and behavior change side, living in Australia and there being sort of water issues and seeing how a government sponsored behavioral change process on whether on, on weather, on water, on water consumption at household level can actually sort of work. Yeah, well, as, as you know, I'm from Melbourne, which is in the state of Victoria in Australia, and I think we went through droughts for a bit of a bit over a decade, and the water shortages in the dams were getting worryingly low, and those those you know ever shortening periods of how long we could last on the current predicted rainfall, and it was getting quite dire. So the government led a program on to avoid water wastage, and. It's hard for me to say how effective it was, but because the dams continued to get lower and lower mm. as the rain just didn't come. But they had sort of all, all sorts of national campaigns or, or at least statewide campaigns that I saw about, you know, getting your leaky taps fixed. Mm. Uh, and, and, and it sort of showed you in, you know, in stickers and billboards how much, you know, one, how many buckets of water one leaking tap can, can create a single day and how, where that, you know, that water is just wasted. Um, you know, little kids at school, we learnt about, if you brush your teeth, you make sure you turn off the tap while you brush your teeth, things like that. Um, we had those little, um, hourglass, uh, sand, sand, hourglass timers sent out to everybody, almost everybody in different neighborhoods that you're supposed to stick in your shower to, and it measures a four minute shower. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, then there were other systems in place, um, that where we had water restriction in terms of, you know, you can't, you can only wash your car with a bucket of water rather than using your hose or, uh, if, if you want to water the lawns, you can only do it between certain times of day. Mm. All these sorts of things like that that I think just mobilize society to help save water. Uh, the long-term solution, um, for Melbourne at least at that stage was the creation or the, the establishment of a desalination plant where they could get salt water and it would be processed and turned into drinkable water. Um, by the time that was finished and the billions were spent, <laughs> the, the drought was over, but, <laughs> but it, you know, I think the world actually has to, everybody has to go through these different, different stages and desalination plants are quite popular in some parts of the Middle East. And I think it's just a global problem now where we have to all look at, and different countries just look at how water can be saved and how we can get creative ways of finding more usable and drinkable water. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure like the world, I know it's, it's you know, it's saying the world as one sort of, Reference term is quite silly, but but it is quite. It's, I'm it's not, quite common. Yeah, I'm not sure shortages. people have realized that how, just how scarce a resource water is, mm, or is becoming it, or least. is now becoming, and that we will just fundamentally all have to change our behavior. And sure, the agricultural and, and, and industry will need to move along too, 
But imagine if every single person fixed their leaky tap and, and took shorter showers and was careful about when they washed their cars or where they washed their cars or how they washed their clothes. I imagine that a tremendous amount of, of water could be saved just from that. I think so. I, I don't think it's going to so- save the long-term... You know, if there's long-term drought, I don't think it's going to completely save you. But obviously, that will if you save some water, that's going to, you're going to the water you have will last longer and go further. And I hear you. I mean, we were just trying to get a hold of the Department of Water and Sanitation. And you know, I'm hoping we'll be through to them soon. Now, their, their big focus is on the repairs and, and maintenance side, right? So leakage, as Fatima, you mentioned, leakage is a big problem. And we have, and you'll see it, you know, just driving up and down. You'll see a pavement flooded or, or you know. Just, you know, just basically government or our public water, you know, going to waste. Uh, Fatima, um, you, during your research, you, you mentioned something called the War on Leaks program. That sounds quite intense. Could you tell us a bit about that? So, uh, it's a project that's being done by the Department of Water and Sanitation. And it was actually mandated by the president who spoke about it in, in his, um, speech. And, um, what they're doing is they're training unemployed youth to address issues of uh, maintenance and, and repairs. I mean, they mentioned that, that skill shortage is actually a big problem. And, and just looking at some of the department materials, it's almost as if they're saying, we intend on taking action on this. We, we intend on executing on this war on leaks. Um, but we just don't have enough skilled people as civil engineers and so on. And, and I suppose that ties back to some of the education, so education issues we've been having as a country. Um, and there's some kind of partnership, I think, with, is it the Danish government? There's some kind of partnership with, to, with trying to, to resolve that aspect. Well, it wasn't specifically mm. for the issues of repair and maintenance, just generally about water management. So that was announced, I think, yesterday. They signed a memorandum of understanding and it's, um, a collaboration with the, South African government and the Dutch government and what they're trying to do is um, learn from the lessons of the Dutch government and how to manage water. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. We're talking about a bunch of things, including the water crisis in South Africa, ecological crisis that's happening in Indonesia, MTN being fined $5.2 billion in Nigeria. Amongst a host of all other things. Remember, you can join the conversation on at DM Show ZA on Twitter. You can also call in on 0861 555 Now, I want to talk quickly about the, the fees must fall movement that's been happening over the past couple of weeks. It's really been dominating the headlines. We had two shows on it, so we, we didn't want to do a whole third show on it. I'm sure listeners are probably getting fed up of hearing me talk about it for the whole hour. But just in the interest of closure, I'm curious about where we are now. Greg, you've been following this still quite closely. And, you know, there was a shift in focus from that to outsourcing. Some people were happy with the no-fee increase in 2016. Some people weren't happy about it. Where are we with all this? Well, I think where we're at now is since President Zuma made his announcement that there would be no fee increases um, across universities uh, in 2016, we saw we saw some universities sort of be satisfied and sort of end the protests, and other universities continue on the protests but shifting other, onto other issues. One of the key issues, well, I think the few key issues were an end to outsourcing, so an end to universities going through through outside companies to get them to do services such as catering, cleaning, maintenance, and and so on, as well as commitments for for other sort of fee based systems like um, to to have a limitation of the registration fee for next year, um, uh, things like fights against um, supplementary exam fees, and so on, and so on as well as the broader goal of getting a commitment towards a path, I guess, towards free education. And what we saw, I think, of the different varsities is some of them were split. You know, some some students seemed happy with the no-fee increase announcement by Zuma and then said, you know, it's time, time to get back to our exams, it's time we study. Um, and a continuation of protests might, put, might now put our future careers at jeopardy. Whereas other students wanted to continue the protest, particularly on the point of solidarity with workers, as workers stood, stood with students in their protest against fees, many students thought, now we have to stand with workers against outsourcing. And I think it was quite impressive, the amount of students who did continue protesting, and even after this sort of thing sort of seemed resolved, and you know, sort of, what more can you do? Mm. 
many of them now have managed to get quite significant achievements at many universities, so such as like UW, oh no, sorry, um, UCT, at WITS, you know, these guys have committed to engagements to end outsourcing and it looks like, it looks like they're, they're starting the path towards, towards hosting mostly insourced workers. We've seen commitments such as the University of Johannesburg for a focus on a more um, African-orientated curriculum where they're introducing, you know, things like um, African philosophy, uh, uh, um, post-colonial movements, uh, um, colonial struggle movements as compulsory subjects for all undergraduates. And that's been a big topic, particularly since the roads must fall issues came up earlier in this year and just change, just changing the sort of the learning systems and the, the orientation of the, the curriculums. And so I think even after the the fees were announced to be lower by Zuma, we have seen this sort of smaller amount of protesters achieve some really significant gains. And in the last few days, we've seen most universities resume studies and now they're preparing for exams. I think the University of Western Cape is one exception where today the vice chancellor, I think, is meeting students and there have been, excuse me, and there have been continued sort of protest disrupting um, the attempts to reopen the university, but I'd, I'd imagine soon that would also, uh, well, those protests will also end. So I suppose my feeling is, is it, are we happy? Is it sort of 100% as, as a sort of supporters of the students and the Fees Must Fall movement? Are we, are we basically good to go? Have we won? I think the students have won. Mm-hmm. If, and if you're a supporter, I think you should, um, be be quite happy with some of the gains made because I don't think anyone expected them to to not only achieve the freeze on fee increases nationally for next year, but to make significant uh, advances against issues like outsourcing. Because people, so if you take Vitz for example, yeah. which is you know probably closest to us here yeah. in in Johannesburg, there've been protests against against outsourcing from students and staff for years. It's been going on for ages. You know, if you drive past Vitz, you'll you'll regularly see this small group of protesters, you know, one of the entrances or something like that. But little 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 advances were made by those protests. And then for these student movements currently to use the momentum in the fees process to then actually make significant gains on issues like outsourcing, I think I think they should be heartened by those by those issues and then also I think it can be heartened in the if if your aim is to over the long term create more accessible um, and more affordable quality education, I guess on on the road to perhaps free education yeah. or free education to the yeah. poor for the poor or whatever, whichever sort of way you want to define it that fits into more accessible quality education for more South Africans, then I think there's been major advances made, and I think this this current movement and this current sort of um, I guess sort of wave of, of demonstrations across the country has completely shifted the discourse and it has completely forced all of the political parties and all government officials to start asking the question, okay, how can we, how can we implement or, or, or make change policies so that education can be more affordable and better for, for students across the country? And I think they've, they've really put that on the agenda. I mean, fantastic. I'm just, you know, heartened just hearing about all this. We heard so much from the naysayers who said, you know, stop causing trouble and just go back to school, stop delaying everything. You know, students want to sit exams, and it's really great to see that, you know, that a committed group of young people, you know, in modern-day South Africa can actually make this kind of change happen. If you're just tuning in, it's just after half past one, the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're just about to switch topics and talk about MTN being fined in Nigeria. We'll be talking to the West African editor of the Africa Report, Tolu Ogunlesi, to give us some more on that. Tolu, can you hear us? Uh, yes, hello. Hello, Tolu? Hello, hello. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, perfect, perfect. Tolu, thanks for making time for I, us at such short notice. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, perfect. So, Tolu, the first question is, I'm sitting here and I hear $5.2 billion. I'm amazed. What on earth could MTN have done to be accused yeah. of, you know, a, pun- a crime worth of that kind of punishment? What are they accused of having done? Well, so, yeah, you know, when you look at the figure at face value, $5.2 billion is a lot of money. Mm. Um, it's actually uh, even more than what MTN makes in Nigeria, which is the biggest market. Um, and almost half of what it makes overall uh, in revenues annually at this last year. Mm. But but there, there's a method to the madness. I mean, if one looks at it. Um, so there's a document 
uh, from 2011 that the uh, Nigerian Communications Commission, which is a regulator, which imposed the fine, there's a document that stipulates a 200,000 fine uh, for SIM card that the telecoms companies uh, fail to deactivate. That could be unregistered SIM card. Mm. You know, um, so this document, so there's a document from 2011 that spells out that fine. You know, it's not, the fine was not, it's not, it's not, so in that sense, it's not an arbitrary fine. Okay. Um, but what, what has happened this time is that the regulator has then decided to impose that fine on the 5 million uh, cards that MTN was accused of not deactivating. You know, so, um, this, and this is the first time that's happening. Before now, they have been fined. But the fines have been on smaller, um, smaller numbers of SIM cards. Mm. Um, so in MTN paid uh, 120 million naira, 102 million naira. Um, if you uh, about last month or the month before August September, you know, so that was a fine for a smaller number of cards. What the NCC has done now is to find them the maximum possible fine, you know, which is which would then explains why it's five billion dollars now. Wow, I mean, I mean. I mean, some analysts looking at it are saying that this recently, because as you say, this has been there since 2011, and some say this has now become a sort of move from a regulatory issue to a national security issue, and there was even a kidnapping in the mix. Could you tell us about the kidnapping and how it and how it affected the telecoms industry? Okay, yes. So, um, so the whole purpose of 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 the of the NCC insisting that the same SIM cards must be registered. Mm. It's because, you know, um, uh, a lot of crime happens in Nigeria, you know, I guess as, as in many other parts of the world as mm. well, um, that is aided by mobile phones. So kidnappings, for example, you know, um, to, or a kidnap happens and then to ransom negotiations take place by mobile by phone. Now, uh, when the SIM card is not, does not have any identifying information, it's not registered to any name, then it's easier for people to use them, you know, to commit crimes. Fraudsters mm. um, and all sorts of people. I mean, even in the northeast where Boko Haram, you know, the, um, the insurgency is going on, um, it, you know, the cars have also been implicated um, in, in, in the insurgency because then the terrorists use them to communicate. Um, and, there's also, and there's no data on the, on the phone, on the SIM card to identify ownership. So the, the government has, um, which is why the government then decided in 20, 2011, you know, that we need all cards must be registered. Mm. Um, so w- what happened was uh, in September, there was a kidnap of a former Nigerian finance minister. And the NCC now says that the same card that was used uh, to conduct ransom negotiations was an MCN card. And also that they found with the kidnappers uh, a, a lot of NCN cards that were not also not registered. So I think that that and so the high profile nature of that kidnapping, I think, was what pushed the government to decide that look, um, we, we must make a move that shows that we're not kidding about this uh, getting this same card registered and the registered ones deactivated. So that's that's how the kidnapping comes in. Um, but another point to make is that the mm. government has given deadlines before now. There have been several um, meetings with, between the government and the telecoms company. You know, as a, and, and it wasn't only MTN that was defaulting actually until about August. All of the all of the four major telecoms companies were defaulting. You know, but 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 the NCC says that the other companies have made moves and have complied fully and have completely deactivated all SIM cards that are not registered, leaving MTN as the sole offender. Wow, I think I think MTN was just sort of calling the government's bluff, and I think they called it correctly until now, and then, you know, this kidnapping, and it seems like they're the ones caught with their pants down. Yes. Um, I mean, totally... Oh, yes, yes. The, yeah. kidnap, the kidnap was a funny point. Mm. Yes. I mean, totally, there's another, yes. there's another sort of angle that's being some people are pointing towards and saying that that the Nigerian sort of government is in trouble financially and you know oil prices are dropping yeah. or have dropped rather and that yeah. you know and a lot of 
a yeah. lot of the government's revenue comes in from the sale of oil. So people are saying what they're actually doing is yeah. using is using the fines and finding large companies and using that to supplement the lost yeah. revenue from oil prices. What do you think about that? Well, you know, to be to be honest, it, it on at face value, it seems to be a, a sensible, logical argument. Yeah. Nigeria's revenues, oil prices have fallen significantly. Um, they are half of what they were um, uh, uh, in 2014, for much for much of 2014. Uh, and so, yes, the government is in need of money. But when you put the context, which I which I have explained mm, earlier, mm. that context makes it that context. That context makes it difficult to justify the argument that the government is doing this to raise money. You know, um, again, you know, if the government was doing it to raise money, it would be a particular foolhardy government that would impose um, that kind of fine to raise money. You know, when that when MTN is one of the biggest taxpayers and one of the one of the highest revenue earners in the country. You know, so um, if I, I personally don't think there's any evidence to suggest that the government did this to uh, to shore up dividend revenues. Mm. If the government wanted to shore up dividend revenues, I don't think MTN would be the target. You know, there are oil companies that uh, I guess you know you could easily move against oil companies which which have access to um, uh, bigger revenues. Mm. Uh, you know, which would be in a better position to absorb those kind of fines. So I don't think that um, the government did uh, to show up revenue. Five billion dollars is, is, is a lot. Is a quarter of the Nigerian budget mm. of the federal government uh, annual budget, um, and uh, and so it will then it will also actually hurt investor confidence if if, if the government was going after uh, the, the biggest companies because just because he wants to show up revenue. I think the context. Which is that this is that this 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 same deactivation conversation has been going on mm. for four for four years. You know, I think that context explains uh, of uh, uh, suggests that the argument of sh- uh, showing up junior revenue is not accurate. I mean, I hear you. Um, I think my my thing yeah. is like you said, it's been going on for four years. There's repeated conversations between the yeah. regulators and MTN about this, so it's hard to pretend now to be surprised. I mean, how do you think you mentioned some yeah, things like investor yeah. confidence and, and I'm curious about regional relations. How do you think this might, I mean, there's been issues between Nigeria and, and South African governments in the past. How do you think this plays into that sort of regional powerhouse um, relational uh, or relationship between the two countries? Do you think this negatively affects that by any chance? Yeah. Well, you know, quite unfortunately, it's a bit unfortunate that this is happening at this time because, you know, uh, the two countries are just attempting to mend the relationship that has, you know, quite frankly, been in tatters. Mm. Um, Former President Jonathan, who handed over in May, um, under him, you know, his final months in office, the relationships between Nigeria and South Africa were, were, were quite poor. And uh, on on the on the basis of a couple of incidents. So first, there was the synagogue um, church collapse in Lagos, in which more than 80 South Africans died. You know, the South African government felt that the Nigerians did not handle the uh, issue properly. It took many months for the bodies to be to be you know to be sent back home, you know, and all that. So there was that, and there was of course also the issue of the um, nine million dollars of Nigerian funds seized at the airport. In, in South Africa. Mm. Uh, so, yes, you know, and the issue of the machinery uh, hired, the South African machinery hired by the Nigerian government. So, all of these issues, um, a year ago, actually, so this was late last year, all of those issues significantly damaged the relationship between Nigeria and, and South Africa. So, at this point, um, this is the time when, you know, with the in Nigeria, they're only just starting to build back the two biggest economies on the continent. So it's unfortunate that. Uh, you now have this issue that suggests that suggests that the Nigerian government is uh, targeting a South African business. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it's going to definitely affect the, the retail of the relations that I talked about. Um, it's not the best time, you know, for this to happen. So I, I just hope that they are going to both countries are going to manage this, uh, not give into conspiracy theories. You know that they are going to manage this at the highest levels and make sure that they are both speaking the same language, 
and not operating, you know, in an atmosphere of suspicion and um, and, uh, and and speculation. I mean, I hear you. I think that's the best we can hope for. And, you know, let's be honest, the whole continent benefits if South Africa and Nigeria get along. Tolu, thank you so much for making time. My pleasure. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. That's Tolu Ogunlesi, West African editor of the Africa Report, just breaking down what's going on with MTN being fined $5.2 billion in Nigeria. doesn't sound like there's any foul play there. I think it's simply a matter of the rules or the rules. And MTN called the regulators bluff for a while correctly and then not so correct anymore. Investors must have been freaking out yesterday. I can imagine. They, they stopped the trading of MTN shares for a while. There was a, there was a rumor that MTN had paid, had paid over the money, which if, if you're making, you know, I think it's $2 billion a year they're making. Imagine reports that you paid <laughs> over $5 billion in about 24 hours. Mm. So you can imagine what investors are thinking without consultation of investors. Anyway, if you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're just going into the last 15 minutes of the show. And I want to switch, Greg, to something you've been looking at quite keenly about the forest fires in Indonesia and what's being described as an ecological disaster. Mm. What's going on? Well, we haven't heard too much news about it, really, but it's intense. If you just look at the photos and the numbers, you've got sort of... Oh, cities and whole sort of regions just colored in this sepia sort of haze from from the smoke fires and like to to just drop some of the numbers for yeah. you just to show sort of the scale of how intense this thing is mm. there's an estimated 127,000 fires burning in forests across different islands of Indonesia Jesus. um and that sort of land on on the land the scale of three times the size of Singapore about the size of New Jersey it's mostly in uh, Sumatra and the Indonesian side of Borneo, mm. and that covers tens of thousands of hectares. So if we want to talk about, about, about the impact and sort of what that means when you're burning this sort of land. So is it fair to say that most of Indonesia is covered in forest fires? Not most, but Indonesia is a very big place okay. with many, many, many islands, but a lot of it, okay. quite, quite a lot. Okay. And so if you're talking about sort of what the impact yeah. is, you know, um, so, so far they estimate that 19 people have died due to related respiratory illnesses. Mm. Half a million have got acute respiratory infections. Um, the visibility in some parts of Indonesia is now at 50 meters because the haze is so thick. Mm. You can only see 50 meters ahead of you. There's something like, so if you're talking about the environmental impact, mm. not only has it affected, you know, areas of Borneo that have such a, um, high sort of biodiversity yeah. around there, there's been 16, 16 million metric tons of, uh, carbon is being released a day. That's more than the US, which has a, an economy 20 times as big as Indonesia's. And so in three weeks, these fires have more, released more CO2 emissions than Germany does in one whole year. Jesus. It's insane, right? And so it's largely because the sort of the peatlands, like this land that, um, the why so much carbon is coming out mm. is because it's extremely rich in carbon. And then there's a sort of peatlands here. And so when it burns, it burns hotter mm. and it burns, burns for longer. And it just sort of really burns for a long time and really releases a lot of these gases come up from the ground. And the same reason for that, why they're burning it. It is because these, these peatlands are also extremely good for growing palm oil and sort of pulpwood plantations. Jeez, I'm like I'm I'm really just struggling to comprehend all it's, the the, the size, insane. the physical size, and the scale of the kind of it's insane. Three times the size of Singapore of the damage it's doing to the to the planet. And I suppose the, my next question is how did you know how did how did it start? How does the fire yeah. this big start or get going or keep going? It's fascinating actually how it started and how it's actually still going because it seems that for a while the Indonesia has a practice of mm. so these um. Um, palm oil plantations, you know, quite big money in Indonesia. Indonesia is the biggest, the biggest manufacturer of palm oil, which is used in a whole host of different products. And at the sort of local level, so some people say it's big business is the fault. Some people say it's sort of medium mafioso sort of type of business and mm. who are linked with local politicians. Mm. But the key thing of what's going on, and this has been happening for a long time in Indonesia, is people and businesses are burning forest land that they hope will basically clear the land and then they can use that for plantations, yeah. right? And this time, it's been going on for years, but this time it seems it's gone a lot longer, a lot more extensive, and done a lot more damage. So the short of it is that political sort of business opportunists mm. um, with potential corrupt and political connections are just trying to burn forests so they can make money off a, uh, off a palm oil plantation. Jeez, and it just got out of control. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then because, like, well, like back to the earlier topic that yeah. Fatima was talking about, you know, with the weather patterns around the world, mm. now El Nino... 
Um, we, we have, sorry. <laughs> We're talking about the pronunciation before we started. So just, and then yeah, it got, it got into my head and now I think I've, I messed it up. So we had but probably like a 20 minute argument about how to pronounce El Nino and what the little squiggle on top of the N is. So that's, <laughs> that's I think us. I knew. And now, now cause I took the wrong side in the argument just to be contradictory. Now I'm messing it up. I mean, Greg, you also studied Indonesian for 10 years. So I think you I got did. the upper hand on us. I did, but luckily it's not an Indonesian word. So, okay, so you know, okay. But so because of the heat patterns and normally what would happen in this sort of circumstance when they have these fires, because they often have them around this time of year in the dry season, mm. you know, eventually the sort of torrential rains come, the monsoons come. But this year, because it's been so dry, they haven't come till later. So in the, in the sort of last few days, it seems to have eased off slightly, only very slightly where there have been some rains. But because it's been so dry with the weather patterns around the world, these fires have just been able to continue and to continue. I mean, it's, it's really sounds completely out of control. And I'm, I'm also making a lot of assumptions about the Indonesian government's ability to mm-hmm. now contain and put it out. So what, what, what's been the response locally in the country, politically, internationally? Are people rushing to, to help put it out or at least contain it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the country's been holding prayers for rain. That's, you know, a starting point, but not sure how effective that is. But what we did see is the Indonesian president, President Joko Widodo, he was mm. actually in the United States uh, on a visit over there. He cut short his trip to come back to Indonesia. He hasn't yet declared a, a national emergency, but six provinces have. Six provinces have declared emergency. And uh, that the president has deployed, I think it's like 30 aircraft and something like 22,000 troops who are now on the ground trying to fight off fight off these fires and as well help and evacuate victims where where need be there's also been assistance from malaysia i think singapore australia and japan who are, you know providing things like um firefighting helicopters that can can drop large amounts of water over these mm, fires mm. but in effect without the rain i think it's extremely difficult to to really target these fires that have become so widespread right now you know it's it's extremely hard to control fast-burning fires that can switch in different ways in the wind and when there's so many of them across so many different islands of Indonesia. I mean, there's really not much to say. It really just sounds like a, a complete disaster and the, and the response sounds pretty slow. If the country is still yet to actually dis- declare this what mm. it is, you know, how can we expect other countries to, you know, to I respond think, adequately? I think so. There are some articles, you know, um, suggesting that the world's media have failed on this, um, on this issue. Yeah, that was actually my next question. Have, have we, I suppose it's we, right? As the media, we, are we failing or not reporting enough about this? Does it matter if we reported more about this? Well, here we are. Here we are right now. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if Obama's listening <laughs> in to send in the, well, you know. I think I think for a few reasons it might have gone unnoticed for a yeah. while. Number one, because it's a common occurrence in Indonesia. Every year there are such fires, and because of the I guess nefarious sort of links, you know, these these uh, are guys trying to profit off the land. You yeah. know, it's these dodgy guys, and they do it all the time, sort of thing. People must have over. I think people overlooked it for a little while. So that's one reason it went underreported for for a short for a while. Another reason is because Indonesia, despite its size, you know, I think it's, it's, it's one of the sort of the most populated countries in the world. Despite its size, it doesn't assume a, a, a large presence in the international media. It gets overlooked for, you know, largely Europe um, and, and North American, you know, it's just sort of like everywhere is mm. sort of like a lot of African issues too. But Indonesia is often, is much bigger than a lot of other countries that still get attention. But, but we don't, focus on the issues even so deeply even in australia where you know indonesia is australia's neighbor it has huge indonesia has huge influence in the region mm. yet the australian media largely ignores indonesian issues and there's still such a misunderstanding from australian side um of indonesian issues and indonesian politics just because of i think our biases in terms of what we want to know about and what we think is important and i hear you <laughs> so like this really, I mean, it's just, I'm actually just get, getting depressed. Well, but, you know, sorry about this. Just to depress you a little yeah, bit more. Let's hear it. I think they were saying something like one third of the world's, um, uh, orangutan population is at risk. Because, you know, when you've got some of these areas around yeah. Borneo and Sumatra, that's, that's key areas, you know, for, for orangutans. And, um, we're, we're not sure exactly of the sort of, um, the, the danger to the ecology and animals yet. But people like like Greenpeace is doing a lot of work on this, and they're saying it's dire. It could be really, really dire. I mean, we'll I suppose try to find if there's some aid organizations, perhaps that are diverting attention in that in that direction, and we'll see if we can maybe tweet some links to how mm. to actually help out, even if it's just donating money or raising awareness. You know, just so not to feel like we're sitting here in Rivonia, just you know, talking shop about this.
If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. I'm sitting here with a very depressed Greg Nicholson, like Katima <laughs> Matiba. Just going to the last few minutes of the show. I think there's another depressing topic, right? There we go. Of course, the migrants, the migrants moving into Europe and how that's especially being handled. Now, Greg, I'm especially interested in your perspective on this because you were actually in Germany a couple of weeks ago for the sole purpose of looking at of how the migrant the migrant issue, migrant crisis, as was being called at some point, is being handled, especially in Germany. So I'm really curious as to your sort of first-hand experience of, of what things are like on the ground. If you could just walk us through just that whole experience. Okay. First of all, I think from a South African perspective, I'm not sure if we understand how much of the public attention and the news it's assuming in Germany. Yeah. When I was there, and still, from what I'm reading uh, lately, it still seems to be is the one issue. Every day I was in Berlin, it was the, on the front cover of basically every newspaper. And for for Germans, many of them do view it as a even whether you support the welcoming of refugees or you don't, there is a strong sense that this is a crisis that, not necessarily from government side, of course, because you know they're they're obviously they don't particularly want to use the word crisis, Mm. but there is a strong sense that this is really the issue of the time. Okay, in Germany, without a doubt, it's the issue of this year. It's overshadowed, you know, earlier in the year we had the, the, uh, Greece's financial crisis. Yeah, the crisis EU financial issues are what is EU. Germany gonna bail everybody out? That's been washed away, you know, it's still a huge issue, mm. of, obviously, in the EU and in Germany, but it's been washed away by this so-called migrant crisis. It's, it's overwhelming, uh, in, in Germany. It's just, I think in terms of the numbers that are, of people that are coming in a day into Germany seeking, ref, uh, seeking as, uh, asylum seekers, it's something like 8,000 plus. Every single day arriving at Germany's borders. Mm-hmm. They haven't seen this sort of migration since World War II. And the, the most recent, I think, they saw was, you know, when the, the former, I think it was, you know, in the early 90s when the former Yugoslavia broke up. Mm. And they did take in huge amounts. So I think that year maybe they took in 400, 450,000 people, uh, uh, in terms of migrants. It was, it was mm. a spike. But in the, this year they're talking about over a million, over a million refugees. It's incredible. She's, and I'm, I mean, I was reading an article the other day and they were sort of, I think it was the economist or something and they were, there was, they were praising Germany's flexibility at, at dealing with this and how they've tried to integrate these people into communities and into mm. schools. And, and the general trend there was that despite crazy conditions and that, that Germany at least is doing pretty well. Was that your sort of assessment on this? Yeah. Well, I think, I think we have to remember one of the key things is that Germany is a very rich country. Mm. And the the culture of German organization and efficiency is, you know, often true. They they are very well planned and well organized. So I can run you through a little bit of what happens to the asylum seekers when they get there. So um, often, you know, you travel quite a long route, you know, sort of through, you might have even walked through some of sort of the Balkans through some of Eastern Europe to get to get to Germany. And then by the time you arrive in Germany, what happens is sort of, so you might come in through Bavaria, sort of through Munich, and then... Because Munich can't handle at the moment all of these huge influx of refugees, they'll probably put you on a train to Berlin or one of the other places, or some will get processed in Munich, then you go to these other places. And so then you might arrive in Berlin where I met some of these asylum seekers, and there you'll get... I think German society has been quite, or some of German society has been quite strong in rallying around and providing support for these refugees. Mm. So you might sort of go to like a... Um, like a city mission or, excuse me, or one of these sort of holding, you know, sort of places where they, where they can accommodate you for a day or two. And then what you do there is while you, while you can, you know, get a bed there for the night, then, and they're trying to open up all sorts of places for that, sort of like sporting stadiums, you know, um, um, school gyms, sporting fields, all sorts of anywhere where they can have beds to lean, you know, to, to have people sleep on. And then you go to the processing center to where, where you can, you know, submit your, your application for asylum. And that's where I think things are falling down a little bit now. Mm. Um, first of all, the resources are just around, okay, how do we house all of these people? How do we provide water, food, shelter? And how do we have the administrative capacity to process, you know, when there's something like 8,000 people coming in a day? It's, it's an intense sort of administrative capacity that's needed. And there, that's, that's getting a little bit, I think, I think that's where some Germans are saying it's a bit of a crisis. So I went, there were guys who'd been coming back every single day for 20 days or something to this sort of processing center. So you mm-hmm. submit your form or, you know, you have a short interview at the start and then you, you know, you, you come back every day with a number, waiting for your number, mm-hmm. your number one down, whatever to be called. And then after that, as, as you're, as you're getting processed, you'll get located in an area around Germany somewhere. And you get housed in sort of old office space or all these sort of different temporary solutions. 
And I think it's after a few months um, you're able to you're able to work and and learn German. That's so they have a policy of integration in Germany, but that means trying to help you find work mm. and also trying to get language skills. So that's sort of the key thing as to what's going on. But on all those steps, Germans are really struggling to continue to um, meet the demand because it's just intense. But so. Chancellor Angela Merkel has been praised for refusing to close down the borders and refusing mm. to put a limit on how many refugees will come into the country a mm. year. The problem is there's steep divisions in Germany. You know, there are the conservative and all sort of right-wing racist parties or, or people are, you know, trying to rally around this, talking, oh, it's, Germany's a Christian country, right? So they're saying these Muslims are coming in, terrorists, how do we know, whatever, whatever. Um, but even in her own party and in, in Merkel's own party, there's mm. been lots of division. And right now, actually, currently, there's intense debate as to how to proceed and how to handle this thing. So I can talk a bit about the potential solutions because Germany can't cope with this forever. But yeah, I mean, that's like, I mean, we've got just a bit of time left. You just run us so, through that. Yeah. So a few things. Some, some of the, some of the brief things Germany's tried to, uh, they've, they've rushed through this law to sort of basically say no to anyone from who they deem safe countries. Seeing these places like Macedonia, I think Ghana was even thrown in there too, you know. So, so if you turn up and you're from Ghana, bad luck, basically, you know, where there's been some debate about that. But so that, so, so you cancel out the guys who, who are unlikely. Okay, so I can just sneak in, basically. Kenya might still actually, I wouldn't be surprised if Kenya is still, you know, with the refugee camps up north and whatnot, maybe Kenya could still. Yeah. Then also, but the thing is, it has to be a European solution. That's okay. the challenge. How can, how can Europe share the number of migrants and how can Europe also, find a way to collectively protect their borders without having fences everywhere and, and having some sort of, you know, concentration camp system, which obviously Germany mm. would be quite shocking to see any sort of system of these camps in Germany considering its history. Greg, thank you. I know we squeezed it to the last 30 seconds there. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. It's a daily I can talk habit. more if you want. So I can <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we're literally getting kicked out. Duncan's of yelling at me. There we go. Thank you for tuning in to Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Please download the podcast, share it far and wide. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.